Matthew chapter 1, from verse 18. Let's read and hear together God's Word. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. Now turn with me, uh, please, to Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, page 855 in the church Bible, 855, Luke 1, 26. Good to come to these passages not in kind of mid to late December. Um, there is a danger there that amidst all the kind of mystery and miracle of Christmas, all the warm glow, that they can become almost mythologized, if you like. Uh, it's good to come to them now and to read these historical accounts of events that took place. So, Luke chapter 1 from verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. There's something devastating about cycles of unremitting hardship or repeated failure. It does something to the human soul. 
uh, to be in a position of oppression or need, and to have no hope that it could ever change. You see this in different areas of life. I remember vividly being at a conference once, hearing from a, a prison chaplain about the seemingly never-ending cycle of offending and reoffending, and the same faces appearing in the prison over and over and over again, uh, people who had come to, to see that kind of life as normal. Or, or sometimes it's poverty. Okay, and I saw that in, in Ethiopia earlier this year. Um, the never-ending cycle of grinding poverty so deeply ingrained, so systemic in, in everything that it's impossible to break out of without help. Sometimes it's social factors. Um, I, once, I once lived in a very poor area of a city uh, when the local news did an item on urban deprivation. Uh, the, the stock image that they showed as they were speaking about, speaking about it was had, had my flat in it. It was nice. Um, I'm sure many fine people lived in the area, but it was an area marked by poverty and drugs and prostitution and need. And I remember at the time thinking that it was one thing to live there for a few years while I was a student and to know that I would then move on, but it would be quite something else to live there for good. You get the same thing very obviously with addiction, hopeless cycles of drug or alcohol dependency or gambling addiction or whatever it is, these things that ensnare people. There's something about these cycles of hardship or failure that's just crippling. It sucks the life out of you. And if you read through the story of the Bible, you can see that kind of writ large in history, always men and women hoping for something better but always it seems that there are cycles of sin and broken relationships and conflict and problems that always, in the end, the ultimate futility of death, the ultimate cycle, the cycle of life itself that screams to us of our mortality. So you can see it on these grand scales, but all too often it applies in our own lives too. And maybe for some of us here in this room, that description of cycles of frustration and failure is uncomfortably close to home. There are mistakes you keep on making. There are character flaws that you know you have and just can't seem to shake. There are sins you can't seem to leave behind. There just seems to be something in us that traps us in these cycles of frustration and helplessness. So here's the big what if. What if there was someone or something that could break the cycles, all of them. Whether it's the big picture of human life or whether it's your life, what if these things could genuinely be overcome? Today, I want to tell you that they can be and that this door opens with the unlikeliest of keys. Today, I want to tell you that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ changes everything. The Apostles' Creed says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And today I want to say, and because of that, nothing will ever be the same again. Many of you will know the name Larry King. Maybe some of the younger ones don't know that name at all. Um, Larry King is a TV personality in America, mainly famous for having talk shows where he interviews other people. It's not so much Larry himself, it's just all the interviewees that he brings on. For 25 years, he hosted Larry King Live on CNN. He has apparently conducted over 30,000 
interviews in his career, uh, including many of the leading figures of our generation. And along the way, uh, King has followed his own path of repeated frustration and failure. He got married in 1952, only to arrange for the marriage to be annulled in 1953. He both married and divorced his second wife in 1961. It was a busy year because he also married his third wife before the year was out and divorced her two years later. He married his fourth wife within months of divorcing his third. That one lasted for four years. And then just to confuse things further, his third wife became his fifth wife as he remarried her. This time it lasted five years. He married his sixth wife in 1976, divorced her seven years later. He married his seventh wife in 1989 and divorced her three years later. And then 22 years ago, in 1997, Larry King married his eighth and current wife. And just when you were thinking that obviously eighth times the charm, if that were a saying, two months ago, at the age of 85, he filed for divorce from her too. Along the way, he has become father to five children by four of these women. Why do I mention all of this? Is it to, so that we can all tut at Larry King? No. Uh, I mean, this, is, this is why I mention it. When Larry King was asked, he was, he was once interviewed, and he was asked, out of the whole of history, the whole of human history, who would you most like to have been able to interview? And his answer was Jesus Christ. And the interviewer said, okay, and if you had been able to interview Jesus Christ, what would you have asked him? And this is what Larry King said. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin-born, because the answer to that question defines history. The answer to that question defines history. That was an interesting and perceptive comment. I don't know whether Larry King himself knows just how perceptive it was. Sadly, he is an atheist. But at least once, he recognized that the virgin birth, if it were true, would change everything. It would be a signal, it would be a sign of something truly world-changing. Now, I'm not actually going to spend any time at all today arguing the case that the virgin birth really did happen. Uh, there is a place for that, maybe another day, but this morning, I'm going to more or less take it for granted that it did, and um, this is true history, because I, what I want to focus on this morning is what it means and why it matters, and that will take our time um, this morning. But by, just by way of general comment, any fair reading of the gospel accounts recognizes that they clearly present a virgin birth. Um, there's no, very occasionally you get people who say, oh, they're not really claiming that at all. Um, th there's all sorts of special pleading needed before you can get there. There is absolutely no sexual language or suggestiveness in either of Matthew or Luke's account, quite the opposite. What we have is a clear statement from Matthew that Mary became pregnant before she and Joseph had been together sexually. We have an objection from Mary to the angel that she cannot possibly be pregnant, and she knows exactly why. We have the word of the angel to Mary that this was from the Holy Spirit by the power of God. We have the initial plan of Joseph to divorce her because he knew he had never lain with her. We have the word of the angel to Joseph. No, this, what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then just in case we were in any doubt, uh, Matthew adds 
a final straightforward statement at the end of his account that Joseph did not know Mary, know in the sexual sense, until she had given birth to her son. That also disposes of Roman Catholic dogma about the perpetual virginity of Jesus, that un- perpetual virginity of Mary, that until. Um, and we know from the Gospels that Jesus had other uh, family, brothers and sisters, other siblings. Um, now, I'm not going to argue for this. The truth is that if you have a problem with the virgin birth on the basis that virgins can't give birth, then you have a deeper problem with God. That's where your problem really lies. This doctrine is not some kind of pre-scientific nonsense, as if people in those days didn't know where babies came from. The whole point of the gospel accounts is that this is not being reported as normal, but as a stunning miracle. It's a unique event. It's the whole point. Children don't come into the world like this, but this one did. So, so don't get all hung up on the miracle question. That's actually not an issue at all. Here's a completely rational statement. If there is a God, if there is a God, it is possible for a virgin to give birth. That's how the angel explained things to an astonished and confused Mary there in Luke 1. Nothing is impossible with God. If you're going to throw out miracles, then you're just not going to get very far with the Bible. Karl Barth, famous theologian, said that the virgin birth stands guard at the entrance to the gospel accounts like a sentry, saying, to be honest, if you don't accept this, you're just not going to get very far here. You're not getting in. Nothing is impossible with God. So, what does the virgin birth mean, and why does it matter? Uh, To begin with, let me remind you of a part of the Bible we didn't read earlier, but we read it often at Christmas. We'll be returning later um, to Isaiah 7, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, But this is what we read there. The Lord Himself, this is Isaiah speaking to Ahaz the king, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's what lies in the background to these events in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. The Lord Himself will give you a sign, and that's the crucial thing. That's what we need to, to, to understand as, we, as we're looking at the virgin birth. It is a sign, and, and, I, and what I want to do this morning is say that it, it is a sign of three things. First, it is, if you'll pardon the pun, it is a sign of inconceivable humility. He came down to earth from heaven. That's what we sing. It's easy to, to kind of just quickly get caught up in the, in the controversial questions about the virgin birth. And sometimes in questions the Bible isn't really interested in at all, uh, but easy then to miss the astonishing heart of what's happening here. I was talking about with the children. Remember what we saw last week. We're talking here about God the Son, eternal in His nature, absolute in His power, magnificent beyond all comprehension, utterly filled with limitless joy in the fellowship of the Father and the Spirit. We're talking here about the Lord, the Lord, the King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods, the one whose domain extends to every square inch of the universe and every square inch of your life. There is nowhere that He does not say, this is mine. This is who we're talking about. He is the source, He is the center, and He is the goal of all reality. Everything must be defined by reference to Him, or it cannot hold together and cannot make sense. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
And all of that remains true of him throughout. Throughout everything, God the Son retains control of the universe. But this Son of God and Lord of all is the one we're speaking of when we say that he was conceived. It is inconceivable, isn't it? He was conceived in the darkness of a womb, tiny, fragile, completely dependent. He takes human form. The the giver of life draws life from a human mother. And not only is he conceived, he's conceived in the womb of a young, unmarried girl in first century Israel, which means that at the very beginning of his human existence, the perfect Son of God is conceived right into, right into the shame of sexual scandal. And that, that remains with him. There are little traces of it here and there in the Gospels. It remains with him through his life. He's that one. Remember Mary? Joseph. Doesn't look much like Joseph, does he? All those kind of, it's not hard to imagine. He was conceived, and he, God the Son, was born. The one who witnessed the birth of the universe was born. In that sense, there was no special treatment, no special arrival. His birth was accompanied by all the things that accompany a birth. The pain, the panting and screaming, the the cry of the newborn, the joy, the, the explosion of love, and in the heart of mother and adoptive father, the bond formed, these moments drinking in every tiniest detail of face and, and tiny fingers and toes and marveling at it all, that's all there. He was born. If you'd been there, it would have looked like an ordinary birth because it was an ordinary birth. What you could not have known just by looking was that you were looking at the image of the invisible God. All the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form, the exact imprint of the nature of God, all the glory and character and being and beauty and stupendous, infinite magnificence of God, born. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. It's a sign of inconceivable humility and a sign, and and this is important, a sign that points to the top-down nature of our salvation. The virgin birth shouts loud and clear that here God is acting, not man. When the time came for decisive action to be taken to restore the human race, to make it possible for us to know God once more, even although we had alienated ourselves from Him by our sin, When that time came, we didn't do it. There was no human initiative. Mary and Joseph were going about their lives, and what happened was announced to them. It broke in. It is is not that the human race produces a Savior. Finally, we've, we've found someone. We've found someone who has lived a flawless life, perfect life, is able to offer up all his obedience to you, God. And, and, and then give himself on behalf of others. We've found one, finally. No, that's not what happens. God says, here is one. The virgin birth is a sign. 
God is saving. God is acting. God the Son takes a human nature to himself, and we can say of him what we can say of no other human being who has ever existed. He chose to be conceived and to be born. The virgin birth is a sign of inconceivable humility. But there's a second element to its significance, which is vastly important. This might sound strange when you hear it, but let me say this, and then I'll explain what I mean. The virgin birth is a sign of unprecedented humanity. It introduces us to Jesus as the true man and the new man. So, in the first place, it's important to recognize that Jesus was born of Mary, simply because that confirms his humanity. He is one of us. Uh, I seem to remember um, Superman films. I, I can't remember what they are what they all have been over the years. I'm probably thinking of a generation before what the younger ones here will be thinking of. Um, But I seem to remember Superman films that have kind of egg-like capsules coming from space, containing a child with special powers. He looks human, but he's actually not. He's he's Kryptonian, if you want to know. He he just looks like a, a human child. But actually, he's an alien being come from the outside. That's not what's happening when Jesus comes. His humanity is genuine. He is one of us, not pretense. His genetic makeup is is the same as ours. His experience of life is like ours. Now, I, I guess we naturally have a degree of curiosity, don't we, about exactly what happened here, biologically speaking. Um, we need to recognize that the Bible gives us an annunciation, not an ultrasound. And that's actually quite important. The Bible gives an annunciation, not an ultrasound. If anything, there's a, there's a discrete veil drawn over it, and we need to be careful about trying to pull back that veil and, and peer into mysteries which haven't been revealed to us. Uh, I said a few weeks ago in relation to creation, that the Bible is far less interested in the, uh, the, the how question or the when question, these are the scientific questions, than it is in the what and the who and the why. Here too, exactly how this conception occurred, the physical process that God used, actually doesn't really interest Matthew or Luke. It's not the point. It's, not, it's just not how they think. We, we think in that way, but they don't. They focus on the wonder and the glory of it. Now, If you pinned me against a wall, this is what I'd give you. With some hesitation, I think we can probably say that Mary contributed biologically what a mother contributes biologically. Half of Jesus' DNA would have come from Mary. The other half is presumably supplied supernaturally, but it's nonetheless real human DNA. God God created Adam. He can create DNA, make this happen. There is no reason at all that Jesus would have looked like Joseph because Joseph contributed no genetic material to him, but he may have looked like his mother because he is her child, genuinely, truly her child. And the Gospels distinguish clearly and consistently between Mary as his mother and Joseph as his adoptive father. That's as far as I'm willing to go, and that's just because you pinned me against a wall. 
But let's return to the question of why. Why a virgin birth rather than a normal birth? Well, there are two main views on this, and I'm going to tell you what they are. The first view is that Jesus had to be born of a virgin, not through the normal process of sexual union, so that he could be born sinless and therefore able to save sinners. And there's a kind of um, crude and false early version of that, and then a, a better version of it. Some early theologians, some parts of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, maintained that this is because sex is dirty and wrong, and Jesus couldn't be mixed up with that kind of thing, and that is completely false. Sex is a good gift of God. The reason to connect the sinfulness the sinlessness of Jesus with the virgin birth is, is different altogether. Uh, the Bible says that in the Garden of Eden, God, uh, Adam was our representative. We were in him, and he acted on our behalf. It happens in all sorts of situations in life. Boris Johnson manages to get a deal, then he will get a deal on behalf of all of us, and it will affect all of us. You can think that's fair or not fair. It really doesn't matter because he is our head. Adam is our head. So if Adam passes the test and wins life, then we all receive life. And if Adam fails the test and is sentenced to death, then we all receive death. That's how it is. Adam fails the test. And, and when he sinned, something was introduced to the human bloodline. It was like pollution at the source of a stream. So that we all have a twist inside that takes us away from God and turns us in on ourselves. We, we should all be able to recognize that just if we're a bit honest. You, you don't have to learn to look out for your own interests. That, that just happens in life. Children from, the er, from their earliest ages are looking out for their own interests. What you have to learn is to look out for the interests of others. You have to learn to begin to undo this twist inside. It takes effort and it takes self-control because there, there's been a pollution at the stream. There's something in us that isn't right what theologians have sometimes called original sin. So, here's the question. How can Jesus be our Savior if He has the same sinful nature that we all have? If He inherits Adam's sin and guilt, how can He be free from the taint of sin? The virgin birth says this is how, because He is a stream from a different source. He is one of us, truly one of us, born of Mary, but his lack of a human father prevents the passing on of the polluted human nature. So that's, that's, that's one view. And on that view, the virgin birth means that Jesus is sinless, and it's, it's absolutely essential. Other theologians are a little bit nervous of, of just kind of pinning it down quite that closely. It's not explicitly there in the text. They would point us back to the fact that the virgin birth is a sign not so much the cause of Jesus' sinlessness, but a sign that He is sinless. God, God makes it this way. He is sinless, and the virgin birth is a great neon sign saying, here is a sinless one. Here is one who does not carry the guilt that you all carry. He is different. Now, in all honesty, you pays your money and takes your pick. You can decide uh, which one of those you think is right. Uh, but on either view, here's what I think is the point of it all. Jesus is one of us, truly one of us, but His humanity is new. It is unprecedented. 
I've been really helped by listening to uh, last Christmas, David Gibson up in Aberdeen, a colleague up in, Ab- in Trinity Church, Aberdeen, preached the whole Christmas season on the virgin birth, five or six sermons um, on the virgin birth. I've been helped by these. And uh, the, way that, the way that David expresses it is this, Jesus was born of Mary that his humanity might be true, and he was born of God that his humanity might be new. That's a nice way of putting it. Hear that again. He was born of Mary that his humanity might be true. He was born of God that his humanity might be new. In crucial ways, he is like us. He has to be in order to save us. And in one crucial way, he is unlike us. He has to be in order to save us. He has to be one of us but perfect. One of us but without the sin, without the taint, without the guilt. This is who he must be, true humanity, but new humanity. So, so you can debate whether the virgin birth is necessary to make him holy, but you can certainly say that the virgin birth is a sign that he is holy. In Jesus, this is the point, in Jesus, God is doing something new. All those cycles of hardship and failure and sin and loss and death, the ones that trap every person, these are being obliterated in this new man, this new humanity. He is a new beginning for the human race. And the virgin birth is a a great signpost telling us that. Here is humanity as it was designed to be. Here is a man without a twist in his heart. Here is a perfect human being, utterly free of any taint whatsoever, utterly devoted to God the Father, utterly loving towards all other people, utterly selfless, utterly pure. There's just there's a there's a shadow of a hint in the language that uh, the angel Gabriel uses in speaking with Mary in Luke one. Um, he says, "You're, you're going to have a child." And she quite naturally says, what on earth? How can this be? I'm, I'm a virgin. And, and listen again to how the angel describes what will happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That reminds you of any other place in the Bible. Genesis 1 earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. God's Spirit hovers, brooding, poised to act, poised to create, poised to give life. And and the, the culmination of that creation is that Adam is formed. Now, thousands of years later, God's Spirit hovers, broods over Mary, and he gives life. The second Adam, the new Adam, the last Adam, as the Bible describes him. In him, the curse is broken. All that Adam did, he undoes. The catastrophe that Adam unleashed, he reverses. The pollution that Adam caused, he cleanses. Through him, we're redeemed from that futility of life in a sinful world. 
He comes as our representative. He's our substitute. He does what we failed to do. He he is what we failed to be. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, because they were called to be the new Adam, but they failed. Where they failed, Christ comes, and he triumphs. John Henry Newman became Roman Catholic. I think he's just recently been sainted by the Roman Catholic Church, as they say. Um, But he wrote these famous words, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. Second Adam, a new humanity. O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. The human condition, um, by which I mean you and me and what we're like. The human condition is such that we don't just need a second chance. We don't need a better moral education. We don't need some kind of spiritual sticking plaster. We need a whole new life. We need a whole new heart. We need power to change. We need something utterly radical. We need nothing less than a new order of humanity. And this is what Jesus brings. The virgin birth signals it. He has no human father because God is telling us he is a new beginning. He is one of us, but he is a new order of person. He is what we all need to be, what we all in the deepest places of our souls long to be. Integrated, connected, whole. free of the frustration and the pain and the hopelessness of failure and sin. And, and, and that's why when you see this, Holy Spirit hovers, Adam is formed, Adam ruins everything. Holy Spirit hovers, Christ comes, Christ redeems everything. When you see this, you, you, it, it's, it's a key that unlocks so much in the New Testament, so much of the language of Paul especially. Because Paul would tell you this, you're in one of two places, Every single human being on the face of the planet, you're in one of two places. You're either in Adam, caught up in the pollution and the sin and the twistedness and the futility, or you're in Christ. You're either taking from Adam what he gives to you, or you're taking from Christ what he gives to you. Adam will tie you down. Christ will set you free. No more then as a child of earth must I my lifetime spend. His history, his destiny are mine to apprehend. Oh, what a Savior, what a Lord. Oh, Master, brother, friend, what miracle has joined me to this life that never ends? This new humanity becomes mine by faith. He is born of Mary because his humanity is true. He is born of God because his humanity is true new. His is an unprecedented humanity. Finally, and briefly, the third aspect of this sign that is the virgin birth, it is a sign of imperishable hope. God is with us. We don't have time to look at Isaiah 7 in detail, but but let me just give you the gist of Isaiah 7. It's 735 BC. Ahaz is king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, Things are not good between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel forms an alliance with Syria to attack Judah. Ahaz is trembling in his boots. 
Uh, God tells him through Isaiah, it's going to be okay. Judah will not be defeated. Israel and Syria will be defeated. Someone else will come and defeat them. You don't need to worry. And to reassure him, he gives him a sign. He says, this will be the sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and he will be given the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, there are lots of debates about this amongst the scholars. Um, some insist that this word virgin in Isaiah 7, just mean, it just means a young woman. It's just a normal word for a young woman. The interesting thing is that there are three words that were available to Isaiah to choose from. One is the word virgin, as we would understand it. At the other end of the scale is a word that simply means young woman. Isaiah chooses a middle word, which is hard to translate exactly into English. It's probably closest to something like our old-fashioned word maiden, a maiden, which implies but does not require virginity. That's, that's the word that he chooses. And the interesting thing is that that prophecy then has a two-stage fulfillment. Um, this, is the, this is how I understand it, a two-stage fulfillment. In the first place, Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah, who is not a virgin, have a child. And that child is given both a name and a title. The name of the child was Maher Shalal Hashbaz, just below Oliver and Jack in the list of most popular names. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It means something like swift to the plunder, quick to the prey. Imagine that for a name in the school playground. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. God told Isaiah that the Israelites and the Syrians that he was so frightened of would quickly become the prey of another nation, the Assyrians. So every time Isaiah calls his son's name, he is reminded of the protection that God has promised to him. But his son is also given a title, and the title is Emmanuel. God is with us. There's the sign. Every time you say the name of your child, you will be reminded of the promise of God to you and there's a wonderful moment, um, it's in Isaiah 8, a wonderful moment where God turns to these nations, turns to Israel and Syria, turns to the nations who would attack His people, and He almost taunts them. He says, bring it on. He says, strap on your armor and devise your strategies, but, but it's all going to come to nothing because Emmanuel, full stop. It's a great expression. My people will be safe because Emmanuel, because God is with them. There's the first stage of fulfillment in Isaiah's life. But given that that word used in Isaiah's prophecy would usually imply a virgin, the writers of the New Testament who knew that Jesus was virgin-born recognized that Isaiah's prophecy had this second layer of fulfillment. This child really was born of a virgin in the proper sense. And not only that, but again, and you find this in the Bible where there are multiple layers of fulfillment, you find that each layer goes deeper. You, you don't get a kind of grand fulfillment and then a kind of tagging on. You, you get more and more full fulfillment as you go. 
So, so the, the maiden becomes a virgin, and God with us, as in God will protect us, becomes God is actually with us. God is actually here with us in the most direct, incredible sense. This child really is Emmanuel. Virgin birth is God's sign, a stunning, miraculous sign that He is with us and with us for good. He's with us in that grand sense. He is with this race of ours. We are not abandoned to our self-chosen fate. A new humanity has begun, but equally He is with us. He is with you and me in our daily lives. The virgin birth signals this. This is imperishable hope. In our struggle, He is with us. In our longing to break free from sin, He is with us. There is a new power in us, making possible a whole new life. In Christ, our humanity is still true, but it's also now new. There's a way to new life, and the door opens with the unlikeliest of keys. Larry King was right. The answer to this question defines history. Who are you? Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? Are you old humanity, doomed? Or are you new humanity? Everything can change. Everything can be made new. And you need never know hopelessness again. Why? Because Jesus. Because Jesus. Let's pray. God our Father, we confess that we are often helpless. We often feel helpless in the face of all sorts of things in life. And we have often been helpless apart from you, cut off from your power. We are unable to break out of the cycles of sin and self-destructiveness that so ensnare us. We pray that you would give us humility to bow before your word there are mysteries here. We acknowledge that. There are things that are beyond our comprehension. We do not claim to fully understand, but we stand in wonder at what you have done, and we stand in astonished joy at the sight, at the prospect of this new humanity, this new life that you have placed before us, astonished that you would invite us in Invite us to leave behind all that we have known, all the pollution and sin and trappedness of who we are in Adam, and instead, repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, that we might be united to Him, that we might be in Christ, so that His life is ours, His destiny is ours. Father, give us faith, give us grace, that we might receive, grasp, enjoy, and live all that you have done for us. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.